Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Coming to you from a Saturday morning, it's election shock therapy. Break the glass. This is an emergency micropod. Guys, how you doing? Okay. I'm here with my Saturday morning coffee. I think this must be a first for election shock therapy to do a a Saturday morning podcast. This is our first Saturday morning podcast. Uh, This this marks our transition into um, podcast adolescence. Uh, We're coming of age as a podcast. Any any good political podcast worth its salt uh, does emergency podcasts at weird times. That's uh, a track with major news events, and we have a major news event to con- to cover here, guys. Uh, yeah. Last night, uh, news broke that 87 year old Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, passed away. Uh, she yeah. died after a extended battle with pancreatic cancer, and really, honestly, worked up until nearly weeks before her uh, before her passing. Yep, and. Uh, we want to spend just a few minutes today acknowledging uh, Ginsburg and her life and her work on the court, but then also begin to think about what a uh, complicating feature this is uh, um, for American politics generally and the election in particular. Yep. So I want to turn over to you guys first. What reflections do you have on the impact that Ginsburg made on the court generally and American politics uh, um, as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess one thing I would start with just is thinking about, um, it's always interesting when somebody like this dies, somebody important dies, right, to think about the things that have changed in their life. Um, and in Ginsburg's case, not just sort of passively things around her, but that she had a, a hand in shaping. Um, and so when you think back to, you know, when she went to law school in the 50s, right, I mean, it was unusual um, for women to go to law school. There were not very many women. In fact, there was this attitude that she said was conveyed to her very directly about, you know, like you're taking a man's place, um, you know, you're kind of wasting a spot, right? Like you're not going to be serious, mm-hmm. serious about this, which is kind of funny in retrospect for somebody who, of course, rose to the Supreme Court of the United States, right? But, um, you know, so it's, it's interesting to think about, like, that's where things were in the 50s to today, where, I mean, you know, I think I've written more law letters for um, female students at Bethel than male students, right? Um, and we've sent more, we yeah. more women to law school in my time than men, right? Uh, and that's a, that's a very marked shift, right? where things are now. Um, and then, you know, she's not just a passive part of that. She's not just something where somebody this is happening to, but who actually pushed that. And it was very active as a lawyer in trying to promote, um, you know, um, gender equality into the law, um, which is one of the things that got her put on, you know, the district court in, um, you know, appeal court in the, under Carter, and then, of course, the Supreme Court under um, Clinton. So, you know, really a, an impressive life. Yeah, I mean, she was on the forefront of, of you know, gender equity um, in sort of U.S. legal jurisprudence. Um, she had, you know, a huge role to play in that. One of the most important figures, really. Um, she, 
um, founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, um, sort of an important branch of the ACLU um, in promoting gender equality. So, so she is uh, she's been a hugely important. Um, hugely important justice. I mean, all justices are important, but some play seem to play outsized roles um, or be in a, a particularly important voice for certain sorts of constituencies um, or for certain sorts of legal causes, you might say. Um, and yeah. she has definitely been, um, been one of those justices. Yep. yep. And, and it's, I think, important to note, she's sort of been seen as the leader of yeah. the liberal in the court, right? I mean, she's the one that you look mm -hmm. to, senior justice on that side, um, which is important. But she's also often seen as kind of the most brilliant. I mean, like the kind of the, yeah. the greatest legal mom. Right there with her. But, uh, you know, it's, so it's a big loss for the for that part of the court. Um, and, you know, it certainly changes the, the dynamics in some really important ways. Yes, yeah, definitely. So Ginsburg uh, joined the court in 1993. And so this this marked the end of her twenty uh, sixth session on the court. If I if I have the, if I did the math correctly, um, is that right? Um, twenty seven. Okay, twenty seven, and was significant not only for the uh, for the decisions that she was a part of, but often significant, maybe even more than uh, almost anyone but one of her best friends on the court for her dissents. Uh, she was often. In many cases, one of the more liberal members of the court. We'll talk more about what that means in, in a few minutes. But that meant that when uh, the five-four uh, conservative majority ruled against uh, her decisions, she often produced some of the most characteristic and notable uh, dissents uh, that the court produced. And memorably, for example, when uh, the court uh, truncated some of the rule, some of the rules of the Civil Rights Act she wrote that you don't get rid of your umbrella simply because you're dry while there's a rainstorm going on outside. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that transitioned her, and again, I'm not a legal scholar, I'm, I'm an international relations guide, I think I've said that far too many times in this podcast, but she achieved a level of pop culture status beyond, beyond all the other justices. Uh, she, was, um, she sells jewelry, I mean, I shouldn't say this. I, sh I shouldn't say that she does this. She has inspired jewelry. She has inspired biographies. Um, she has inspired uh, tattoos. Um, and as far as I know, no one is getting a Stephen Breyer tattoo. Uh, this is uh, this is someone who's entered into uh, not just political culture but popular consciousness in a in a very inspiring way. And I might note too, I was trying to think this morning um, if I would point to anybody else of the Jewish faith who I would think has ascended as high as Ginsburg in the American political establishment. And I'm, and I'm struggling to find anybody who is as, uh, as influential as she has been in her career as well. And I think that's worth noting also. Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting. She's, she was one of those people, um, I mean, she became, you know, more, more sort of politically vocal um, in the past 10 years or so. Um, mm -hmm. And that has caught her in some, you know, got her in some hot water at a few points. But um, but she was known for, um, you know, despite whatever, and, you know, justices, you know, are supposed to be sort of above the fray and not make political statements. And she, she kind of went up to the line more than most others. Um, but she, 
she never crossed over and became caustic. And she was known for her actually close friendship with Antonin Scalia, um, the most recent Supreme Court justice to pass away. Um, and they were obviously on, on complete opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. They had completely different judicial sort of philosophies as well. Um, but they genuinely enjoyed each other's company. Um, um, they spent every the New Year's together um, with their with their families, um, and you know, and there would be these you know panels in which you know these you know that Supreme Court justices do, where you know they are both invited to speak together um, and give comments on sort of jurisprudence, and you know they disagreed on a lot of things um, quite profoundly, but they had a lot of respect for each other, and that didn't keep them from being friends, um, like genuine friends to the extent that they spent time in each other's homes with their families. And I think that's just, um, we need more of that sort of thing in American politics today. So Ginsburg was, was passionate. Um, she had opinions and, um, and she spoke those maybe at times when she shouldn't have, but she was respectful. Um, and she and Scalia had a sort of friendship that I think is really missing in today's um, polarized politics. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the things that has really you know, increase my respect for her, is that she was that kind of person where she's brilliant, yeah. obviously had very strongly held convictions, right. very far, you know, very, very to the left, right, on the court, I mean, much more liberal than, say, Breyer and Kagan even, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that graciousness, right, of being able to be close friends with somebody you disagree with. And I, when I knew that of her and of Scalia, I, I think my respect for both of them rose to say, yeah. oh, you're brilliant, you're strong ideologues in some ways, right? And yet at the same time, you also share this in common and you can, you can set those things aside and, and respect each other as people, appreciate each other as people. And you're right, Matt, and I think that's something too often yep. um, And it's impressive for somebody who became known right on the left and one of her monikers is you know, sort of notorious RBG, right? Yeah. Um, but that, this piece of her is also an important part of that. Um, right. Yeah. And I think it demonstrates that, um, that our polarized environment is not merely due to disagreements on ideas. It's due right. to the attitudes that people bring with them into those disagreements, right? And I think Scalia and Ginsburg show how you know brilliant minds, some of the most brilliant minds of of our era, really. Um, those two in particular, um, you know, can 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 disagree yeah. profoundly, but do it in a civil way. Yeah. Well, I think often we focus on the disagreement, but it's also important to note. They agreed on a lot, right? Oh, that's, that's true. Court goes nine zero, right, or seven two, yeah. or yeah. and they, you know, where they would join and they'd be on the same side and be like, "Yeah, this is clear." And then there were others where obviously they deeply disagreed and gave those kind of, you know, memorable dissents, like the one that Chris was just citing. <laughs> and Julia had his fair share of those as well, right? So exactly, in, in that way, I think they shared a certain. Um, I guess what I would say is. Uh, a certain commitment to the law, which you should, which you should absolutely expect out of a Supreme Court justice. Right. But when they, when they disagreed, they did so vociferously. <laughs> but when they found reasons to agree, they agreed as vociferously. And yeah. I think that that's that's notable. I, I'm not going to say anything that you you two haven't already said. But one of the ethoses at um, at Bethel, where we all teach, that I'm sort of that, I, especially in our department, and I think this is something I like carrying forward is this idea of being able to disagree and to hold strong opinions and to disagree agreeably yeah. and to not simply uh, dismiss uh, 
um, vigorous discourse because it doesn't have prescribed narratives. And so I, I really hold up uh, Ginsburg and Scalia as kind of models for what I'd like our students to engage with. And we don't see enough of that. Could you imagine Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer like spending New Year's Eve together? Um, <laughs> No. no, not unless not unless they're being forcibly detained by something. Uh, so I, um, I I wish for more of this, and um, yes. and some people might hear that and, and make light of it and say, well, you can't truly be holding your convictions if you will slum it with people who disagree with you. But I I just find that to be patently false. Yep. <laughs> um, well, I will say that. Um, if you are in the state where you are still uh, grieving uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing um, and are not ready to think about the political implications of this, um, you can go ahead and stop the podcast now. Yeah. Uh, we are going to transition to talking about sort of the, the venal uh, uh, implications of, uh, of what, what, what this now means. And so if you find that distasteful, I apologize, but this is a politics podcast. So we're going to turn over to that now. If, I, if, if, if we had sponsors, guys, I would throw it to a sponsor now and then come back just to give people a little bit of cognitive space. But now I've rambled enough. So okay. let's, let's talk a little bit about what this means. Uh, the, uh, I made the mistake, and I truly mean this, I made the mistake of going on Twitter last night. And so now, oh, I'm no. now I'm convinced that um, a giant meteor is headed towards the United States. Um, look, depending on one point, I, I want, uh, from, if you are of the progressive mindset, you are convinced that uh, the last, um, the last stalwart standing athwart uh, the oncoming crush of Trumpism has now been removed, and America as we know it is coming to an end. Um, and I must confess, I did not delve deeply onto the conservative side, but there is a certain, the, the, the little forays I made were um, pretty enthusiastic, not rooting, not certainly not celebrating the death of this, of, of, of Ginsburg, but um, uh, sort of uh, loving the idea that Donald Trump, maligned though he has been by the media, is going to make his third Supreme Court pick in his first term. And um, there's a. And as we're recording, um, he actually just released a statement that he wants to move quickly um, mm -hmm. to actually, because as you know, earlier this morning, there was nothing from the Trump administration on that. But as of the recording, he plans on, on moving forward quickly. So, yeah. so let's, let's just really quickly, before we get into the real, the real meat of our analysis, let's just catalog what the statements are at this point. So this will serve as a historical artifact, uh, you know, 12 hours after this news breaks. In the 12 hours after this news breaks, which includes an American uh, uh, nightfall, um, so there's, this has been moving very quickly, um, several U.S. senators have already come out and announced a position where they said that they would not want to consider a replacement for Ginsburg prior to the election. Now, um, that includes Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. Two of the, uh, and, and to be clear, the uh, Republicans have a four-seat advantage in the Senate. I'm sorry, uh, yeah. So what they would, so they would need, Democrats would need four Republicans to block a, um, a, Senate, uh, a, a Supreme Court nomination. So they've said that, they, now what they haven't said, to be clear, is that they're going to wait until a new president is inaugurated. They've just said they don't want to do it before November 3rd. Um, 
And then several others, uh, Chuck Grassley actually has already come out and said that he's not, he doesn't want to do, make a, um, doesn't want to hold hearings until after November 3rd. And the sort of, there was sort of a bated breath waiting to hear if like Mitt Romney would say something yeah. um, or someone else would come out. And so far that hasn't happened. But this prompted Mitch McConnell to write a fairly lengthy letter to his uh, senatorial colleagues on the Republican side. And I won't, um, uh, I won't read the whole letter. It's actually a couple pages long. But it actually, the, the, the main line is, keep your powder dry. He specifically says that to them all and says, don't make any statements about what you will or won't do uh, until, we, until we have a chance to all work together on this. Um, which is Mitch speak, I think, for stop saying you're not going to hold hearings. We might, I might have a way of talking you into holding hearings. Um, he, the other thing he said, and this is a very interesting formulation, is as you know, famously, Mitch McConnell refused to hold hearings on Obama's um, attempt to appoint a replacement for Antonin Scalia, uh, Merrick Garland, back in 2016. And his rationale in 2016 was... I can't, we can't hold hearings on Merrick Garland. We're too close to the election. At that time, we were about 269 days from the election. Um, we're now about 50 days from the election. Um, and what he has said is, well, this is different. And he said this in a, in a tweet. And I didn't know that McConnell tweeted, but apparently he does. Um, and he's also said this in his letter. He said, we're following, wait for it, the Biden rule. And what he's calling the Biden rule is... You can't hold hearings when the Senate is of a different party than the president and you're coming up on an election. And that's how he's trying to parse the difference between 2016 and 2020. In 2020, we've got a Republican Senate and a Republican president, and so it's okay to hold hearings. 2016, we had a Republican Senate but a Democratic president, and it's not okay to hold hearings because we're too close to the election. Now, this is a... I guess let me ask you this as the first question. Is this good logic or is this tortured logic? Um, I'll, I'll choose a third option. It's called political logic. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so um, a feature of politics is that politicians will take an action that is, you know, they think is politically advantageous or achieves a certain policy position, and then they will use sort of some sort of post hoc reasoning to justify it, right? And they will change the reasoning along the way if necessary. Um, Republicans do this and Democrats do this. If the positions have been reversed, I have no doubt that Democrats would do this. Is that make it justified? Probably not. <laughs> Um, you know, he is right that there is a, you know, this is a, a different situation in a way. Um, you know, all we have is the Constitution that says that, the, you know, the president gets to uh, make nominations and the Senate has the power to confirm or to, you know, reject nominee. That's all we have. Um, so if you look back at U.S. history, and I didn't have a lot of time to do this for obvious reasons, um, basically there's only um, two vacancies that have occurred closer to Election Day than Ginsburg. Um, so Ginsburg's vacancy was at um, day 46 before the Election Day. We've only had two vacancies um, sooner or closer to Election Day. And in both cases, the incumbent president won re-election and then successfully filled the vacancy shortly after Election Day. Um, but if you sort of extend um, 
to all of American history, basically you have 29 vacancies during presidential election years. Um, so about half of US presidents have faced this sort of situation, although not nearly as close. Um, in all cases, um, the president did nominate a replacement, um, but how that went down sort of varied by situation. So there are 10 vacancies in presidential election years in which the Senate and the president were controlled by different parties. In those situations, um, only one was filled before the election. Um, however, how long, when the, how long ago was that? I don't know off the top of my head. Sorry, I, I was scrambling. That's, okay. that's to, okay. I can't remember that uh, happening in any time in recent history. It's not been recent. So, however, when the president and the Senate are controlled by the same party, the replacements um, are confirmed before or shortly after an election more often than they aren't. So, I guess. Sort of the bottom line is each side is going to try out um, sort of historical reasons um, for why um, to sort of justify um, their position. I guess the takeaway is that nominations in this sort of situation are relatively rare, right? And so whatever historical norms exist are pretty thin. Um, the general trend is that political actors do what is politically possible for them to do. If yep. they can successfully exercise power, they're going to do that. Yep. Um, and then they will de develop some sort of justification for it, um, you know, um, at, as needed. And they will change that logic as they go. Yeah, I agree. I think this is all political logic. I think the only thing I'd add is, and just to kind of reinforce what you were saying, Matt, we have not had somebody confirmed this close to an election when the vacancy happens this close, right? So um, the, I think the closest where you've had a vacancy occur and the president filled it before the election was like in a July vacancy. Um, which was actually 1916 when Charles Hughes resigned from the court to run for president against the sitting president. <laughs> um, right. So, um, you know, the, we haven't had one this close, but that doesn't mean they couldn't try. There's certainly nothing constitutionally to stop them. Um, mm -hmm. It would be unprecedented. Um, I yeah. want to actually speak to the constitutional issue here. And, and you know, my mantra guys, which is that we're not pundits or political scientists, but if we're, <laughs> if we're going to be sort of um, in the spirit of, of Ginsburg, if we're going to be constitutionalists, if we're going to care about this document, I think we need to acknowledge two things. Uh, one of the things we need to acknowledge is that uh, uh, Barack Obama should have got a hearing and a vote on Merrick Garland back in 2016. Oh, yeah. That yeah. should have happened. And it was egregious that it did not happen. Yeah. But that also means you have to say the sitting president now and the sitting Senate now can consider a Supreme Court replacement and should be able to, should they so choose to do so. Yep. And I think to suggest that it's immoral or illegal for them to move forward is patently false. Right. Um, whether you like the current president or like the current configuration of the Senate, this is what happens. Right. And there were essayists writing back in 2013 and 2014 that Ginsburg and Breyer should preemptively retire. Yep. so that they could be replaced by Barack Obama. And uh, they didn't. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not holding them at fault. They were very good at their jobs, and Breyer continues to remain good at his job, and there's no reason why he should be forced to step down, but this is the outcome of, of that strategic decision. They are ultimately political actors, if not politicians, and, and, and this is a consequence of their political actions. Um, okay, so beyond that constitutional perspective, though, I've been trying to puzzle through something here, and my thoughts are still muddled. So either join me in my muddled thoughts, <laughs> or, or 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 give me or give me clarity. But 
Donald Trump certainly has one of his biggest um, electoral arguments uh, is that he can appoint conservative justices to the court. And certainly McConnell has collaborated with him at the lower court levels. They've they've appointed an enormous number of justices. He's already gotten uh, um, Kavanaugh and, and Gorsuch on the court. Should he... Should Donald Trump move as quickly as possible, as as Matt said that he intends to do, um, and get a name out there? The the front runner appears to be Amy Coney Barrett um, to to replace Ginsburg, or does he slow roll this a little bit, just dangle the nomination out there and promise, if you vote for me on November third, I will appoint a conservative justice and you can't trust joe biden to do that so you better vote for me yeah so i i've been stewing about this um i was like trying to go to sleep last night all this was churning around in my head <laughs> so yeah now he's now just issued a statement he doesn't want to delay so now what that means in practice who knows um i mean so if i were advising the gop here's what i would say um so moving forward is pretty high risk at this point because there's no guarantee that you get 50 votes for the nominee in the first place so putting up and so so there's no guarantee right because everyone's kind of squishy and there's a lot of vulnerable senators we're going to talk about that maybe in a minute so if you put up a nominee and then the nominee gets defeated then you've basically not filled the vacancy and you ticked off a lot of people sort of not only on the left but also moderates that might be uncomfortable with with this situation and with mm-hmm. uh, the GOP's move to try to nominate. So basically, instead of doing that, it would be smarter, I think, um, to basically hold off on the nomination now, maybe say, I will put up the nominate, or, or even make the nomination now, but say, we're not going to vote um, until after the election day, or maybe even uh, or maybe even after the new Senate is sworn in, and basically give the GOP a reason to get fired up and to vote, right? Because if you do all that now, based and, and the nomination, let's say, is successfully pushed through, um, and the vacancy, you know, is is taken care of, then basically Republicans don't have as much of a reason to go out and vote for for the president or vote for these senators, right? And then you just take off all the moderates who do have a reason to maybe get out, get out and and punish the president. So so hold off, um, you know, slow walk it, make a promise, make it a campaign issue, right? And get a lot of people fired up to go vote for GOP senators um, and for the president, right? Because there's a all of those people are in danger right now of of getting sort of removed from office. And this basically gives them a winning issue because right now they don't have a winning issue, right? Right now, GOP senators are dragged down by Trump and Trump is dragged down by his his performance um, on a variety of measures, including, you know, the dealing with COVID and the economy and, you know, his general unpopularity. But but this basically gives them a winning issue, I think. Um, And so that's what I would do. And in the end, let's face it, if all of it doesn't pan out, and it's not like they've lost the Supreme Court, right? If if mm-hmm. Biden wins, the Democrats get back the Senate, they, they're just replacing Ginsburg. So mm-hmm. it's not like it changes the composition of the court. It's not like you're replacing Thomas, right? right. You're replacing Ginsburg, right? So yeah. there's this is sort of a low risk. Um, it's low risk in that way. Simultaneously, however, if you take off enough people and Biden sweeps into office and Democrats take back the Senate and they're successful in replacing, you know, the GOP successful in replacing Ginsburg, I can 
almost promise you there's going to be serious discussion about Democrats changing the number of justices sitting on the Supreme Court. Okay, um, I want to come back. I want to come back to court packing, but before we before we get there, um, I think, based on what you just said, Matt, that there is a big difference in the game theoretic value propositions yeah. for McConnell versus Trump. And I think there's Trump logic and there's McConnell logic. The Trump logic says the first value proposition is getting reelected. And I want to do whatever it takes to get reelected. McConnell, uh, all apologies to Amy McGrath, uh, is going to win re-election, right? Um, Probably, he has yeah. a 90% chance of winning re-election according to 538. And if, if McConnell is losing re-election, then, this, then, this, then the Republicans have lost the Senate entirely. So let's hold that aside for a second. So what Trump wants is, is re-election. And then somewhere down the line is, is getting another justice on the Supreme Court. But that's a lower priority for him. I'm not even sure Trump cares that much about the court. To be quite frank, yep. um, in contrast, McConnell really wants members of the court. He sees that Trump is a weak candidate who could likely lose the presidency, and he wants he wants a, um, a conservative nominee on, on the court while he can get it. Yep. And so, I think there's going to be this push pull between these two these two guys. I think McConnell's going to want to have a hearing and a vote either before the election or between November and January um, at the at worst. And I think he might see this as a wasting asset. If he doesn't get the, the, the hearing soon and Trump loses, the outcry might grow even even louder for Trump to do a lame duck maneuver and try and put a, put a, a justice on the court while he's a lame duck president. And so I think you'll actually see some pretty tense negotiations between McConnell and, and Trump about the sequencing and timing of this yeah. nomination. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, Andy. Go ahead. No, I I agree with all that, and I think that. I mean, but then that does raise the specter of the court packing problem, right? Yep. If you are seen to be too crass about this, let's say for example, Trump loses the election, then put somebody on the court, <coughs> right? And and then assuming the Democrats have a majority in the Senate starting on January third, right? I mean, like then, you know, do they try to increase the court to eleven or thirteen or whatever, right? I mean, to then switch that majority. Whereas I think if you if you treat this with a little more respect to the institutions, right, then maybe they accept like, okay, we're just gonna replace RBG, right? If we do, if we do. Um, so yeah, I think this, you, you gotta be careful here. Like overreach could be costly at multiple levels. I mean, you might win this and then lose the next round and lose the game, right? I mean. Um, so let, let, me, um, let me put both of you on the spot here. Let's tease this out. Let's say Trump, puts Amy Comey, I'm just going to make a, make, make a narrative here. So this is a very low probability event. Yep. But Trump puts, uh, nominates Amy Comey Barrett before November 3rd. Um, Senate Republicans have very quick hearings, which they're capable of doing. Uh, Ginsburg only took about, about 50 days herself to get confirmed. So this, yep. I mean, it, we're within the range where this could happen. Yeah. Uh, Amy, Amy Comey Barrett joins the court. Republicans or Democrats. Before election day. Before election day, okay. this highly mobilizes Democratic voters who are mad about this. Um, and not only does uh, tr Biden win the presidency, but Democrats win the Senate. Let's say that they control both the Senate and, and the presidency, and, and, the, and the House goes without saying. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think are the chances that there actually is um, court packing? That there actually is an expansion of the court to some number greater than nine, let's say 11 or 13? 
how is this is this a likely thing? It's it's likely on Twitter, but Twitter's also promotes many things that also aren't likely. So <laughs> it, depends, it depends on how big that Senate majority is. I mean, I, I yes. could see some senators going for it. I also think there are some senators on the Democratic side who are gonna be reluctant to get on that. I find it hard to imagine, say, Joe Manchin signing off on court packing, right? Um, and and you got to be careful. I mean, court packing has a dubious history, right? I mean, like you, in 1937, this was kind of FDR's solution. He had just won a massive landslide, far bigger than anything that either Joe Biden or Donald Trump can dream of, right? Um, he had a huge majority in the Senate, and he was frustrated by the court that was blocking some of his schemes, and he wanted to do this court packing, and it really hurt him. I mean, he didn't pull it off. He had to back away from it. Um, and there was some real reaction against that. So, I mean, you know, I think you got to be careful if you're seen as being too crass. And so I think that's the concern for both of these parties, right? It's like, right. I think it could be Trump and the Republicans and McConnell being too crass about their use of political power. Um, and the Democrats doing that too. You know, you overreach and there does tend to be a sense in which the, the voters punish you. Um, so yeah. I think, you know, they both need to be aware of that problem. I mean, everybody uses political logic to come back to Matt's earlier point, but but you also got to, like, in that political logic, think about how far can I go before the voters say, like, okay, that's too far, <laughs> right? Um, mm -hmm. so I don't, I don't yeah. know. If I, I don't want to try to put a number on it, but I think it's possible. I just think it's a, I think it's a bad idea. If yeah. you're going to go too far, though, what recent history has taught us, better to go too far early in a presidency and early in a Senate and a House term okay. uh, because voters don't have a long memory. So if you're going to do something like this, doing this in early, 2020, early 2021 – yeah, might be the play. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I generally agree with Andy. I think there's going to be some Democrats that are really squeamish about this. On the other hand, depending on how the country feels at the time, and you know, if if there's such a massive uprising and enough Democrats sweep in, like they might have a majority in in the Senate to do this. In the House, like, yeah, that that might, that might be an even easier sort of lift in the House. So, so yeah, and I mean, and also we're a lot more polarized now than we were during FDR's time. Um, yeah. And and what we've seen in the past 20 or 30 years is this sort of continued escalation by both sides. You know, yep. one side, you know, removes a filibuster for these sorts of bills. And then the next, you know, time the other party takes control, they up the ante and it just kind of goes back and forth. And, back. and, and we have not really seen a stop to this sort of, um, to this trend of accelerated, polarization and breaking of, of, of norms, for lack of a better term. So I'm not sure um, what's going to stop this trend. <laughs> I think, you know, given this particularly volatile situation, I mean, this trend could very well continue. I mean, hey, like, let, let's face it, U.S. politics right now is a dumpster fire, and we just threw a bunch <laughs> of gas on it. Um, and, and, you know, I just, I, I hope Andy's analysis is right. Um, I just, I'm not confident that, you know, given given the trends of where we've gone, that that it's, this is going to be the time in which everyone sort of pulls back from the brink and says, hey, we're not going to go there. So. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I do think, like, on the, I guess the, the, my, my more hopeful take, right, I do think it would be better for the country not to try to ram through a, a nominee between now and election day, um, whatever your you know, political leanings are. I just think that would be wiser less inflammatory, <laughs> not pouring quite as much gasoline under the fire, so to speak, right? Um, and I think it's possible that you have enough Republican senators who are reluctant. I mean, I, I see well, already Collins and Murkowski, as we said, have come out. It would not shock me if Romney did. It would not shock me if Chuck Grassley, you know, yeah. said, like, yeah, we're not going to do it before, and we're not going to do it with the lame duck president, right? I yeah. mean, 
Um, and then you have four, right? And without those four, I mean, you're not, this is not going to happen, right? And there are others that could could also, you know, say, I'm not playing this game, right? Um, so, yeah, I think there's a chance that it gets kind of, we, we kind of are able to de-escalate this somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if, if you know, Trump and McConnell, I mean, so if, if four senators, you know, from the get-go signal to McConnell, I'm not going to consider any nominee that you put up. We need to hold off. Then McConnell's hands are tied um, right. and they're going to have to punt. Right. Um, but, you know, the benefit there is, you know, if if the GOP punts this until after the election, they defuse a political bomb, right? They they look really good. They look like upstanding, responsible, you know, statesmen, right? And stateswomen for, for holding off. Um, and they give their base, you know, something to get really fired up about. Yeah. So, um, and then if it all doesn't work out, well, then the Supreme Court, you know, remains in its current composition. But yeah. But I don't know if people are thinking rationally at this point. Back to, not, not point so. back to your political argument, Matt. I mean, I think there's a good reason. You know, I, I agree with Chris's take on what McConnell wants, but I think there's a good reason for Trump and for some of the Republican senators to say, we need a different path, right? We need to think about like how do we optimize this politically? And I do think the way you optimize it politically is you make it, well, let's go vote. Who do you want on the Supreme Court in RBG spot, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that might make a difference in, say, Joni Ernst's seat in Iowa, Tom Tillis's seat in yep. North Carolina, the two, the two seats in Georgia, right? I mean, those are close races, right? And this could up the turnout, and you up the turnout, and you might change that game, right? Um, you could even change things like Martha McSally in Arizona, right? I mean, like, um, who doesn't look like she's in good shape right now, right? But, that, you know, you, you shift some of those, and all of a sudden, um, that changes the 2020 election. So I think yeah. from an electoral standpoint, that seems like, if I was advising them, like, how do you use this politically? That's how you use it. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly can't think of a better sort of exogenous event that could be capitalized by the GOP, short of China invading us and Trump, like, repelling the... Oh, like, any sort of... Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, so any sort of, um, you know, possible, you know, foreseeable sort of exogenous event that could be sort of capitalized and turned into a useful strategy, I mean, this is, this is pretty high up there, I think. Um, now, whether or not they actually... Um, do something that makes sort of political electoral sense is another question because <laughs> they've not done a very good job of that um, in no. in the past four years. So. Yeah, yeah. I, this really could boil down to uh, a conversation Mitch McConnell's having this morning over his own bowl of like you know shredded wheat. Uh, whether <laughs> come on, you know McConnell's a shredded wheat guy. That's just that's just a thing. Uh, We're grape nuts, but <laughs> see, you, you know the trick with grape nuts. I've never, we've never talked about this in the podcast or anywhere else for that matter. The trick with grape nuts, you got to get them a little bit warm. No. Oh yeah. You got to get them a little bit yeah. warm and they're good. I try it. You got to get a little bit warm. No, and Courtney, grape, I eat grape nuts and, and I, I like it ice cold. It's better that way. Oh, you probably chew ice cubes too, don't you? Maybe on occasion. There we go. But I mean, honestly, I think this could boil down to a logic where McConnell says, do I want to keep the Senate or do I want to put, do I want to lock down the Supreme court for the next generation? And it might be one or the other, because if he dangles the nomination and uh, he might get, he, he might save Tillis's job. He might save Lindsey Graham. He might save, uh, uh, run down the list. I don't think he can save McSally, but, um, uh, but he might say, like, I, I can, I can save two or three senators by yeah. dangling this. And, 
I might lose the chance to replace Ginsburg with a conservative justice. Yep. Or I replace her with a conservative justice and I get and I give up being majority leader. And I think that's a, that might be a real calculation he's 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 sussing out right now. Yep. Yep. Well yep. the other the other crass move you could make, right, is you play that game and you persuade Trump to then make a a lame duck appointment. And you run it. Oh, that's right. He could. But if you, especially if you play that game and you hold the Senate majority, you get away with that because then you can't pack the court because then Biden couldn't change the number. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, you know, that's, yeah. And, and I mean, like, and let's be honest, like, is that not going through Mitch McConnell's head? It is. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's one of the things he is thinking about doing. Yeah. I don't know if he will end up trying to do, but it is a thing he is thinking about. Yeah, he is definitely one of the shrewdest uh, political operators that DC has seen in a while, um, yep. and both sides recognize this fact. Um, I think he physically consumed the the collected works of Nicola Machiavelli. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. what you said, right? Like he shreds them over the grape nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Mm, tastes like mandragola. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think some of this is just out of his hands. It really depends somewhat upon, you know, what what some of these these senators are, are going to want. And that's the thing in the Senate. Um, you know, each individual senator has an enormous amount of power. Um, one senator can hold up um, an entire vote um, yep. and, you know, change the course of the Senate, um, unlike the House, because of the way that the Senate is structured. So, so McConnell doesn't have the sort of power that, you know, um, the speaker of the house does in the house. So, so I think, you know, he's going to do what he can. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to watch over the next few, you know, couple of weeks, um, what some of these key senators, um, signal their, what, what they signal they're going to do. Right. One last question for you guys. Uh, the a couple of former Obama administration officials are running a super PAC Specifically, and I, I'm mostly telling you this because I love the name of the super PAC. So they're running they're running a super PAC that's that's geared towards funding Democratic Senate candidates, and the PAC is called Get Mitch or Die Trying, um, <laughs> wow. which is a reference to a Fifty Cent lyric, which I'm telling saying that for Andy's benefit. Um, but uh, this, oh, here's the point: uh, they had about three three point five million in the super PAC as of yesterday afternoon. They're now sitting on ten million. Wow. They got six over six and a half million dollars of donations last night. Wow! So, Holy cow! That tells me, I think that at least amongst a certain portion of the population, Ginsburg is a very politically mobilizing figure. Oh yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this: Do you think that holds for the electorate, not just the donor class, not just people giving money? Because I don't know, I don't know who is giving how much money that well, fund. Yeah. Who knows? But does do people turn out to vote on the left or the right because of Ginsburg? What do you guys think? I, I think it's a possible mobilizing factor. I just it's really hard to say how it plays. I mean, like, does it fire up the Republicans more because they have this opportunity? I feel like the Democrats who should be fired up should already be fired up for other reasons. So I don't like. Does it fire up new people to turn out? Um, I'm not sure. And how, how deeply compelling is this in the minority base of the, the Democratic Party? And that, I'm, there, I'm just not sure, like, is it as compelling an issue? It feels to me like it's maybe not unimportant, but not the most important. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I, think, I find it very hard to read, like, which way does this go in terms of, like, who this is actually likely to help? 
Yeah, I mean, the people who, you know, are fans of Ginsburg, they're already voting for Biden. And right. they're probably more likely to vote than not to vote anyway. Um, so the question is more of the the people who are sort of squishy Democrats who maybe aren't interested in, you know, who might just sit it out because they don't like anybody. Uh, they don't like Biden that much. Or I, I don't know. I just... I don't know if Ginsburg is the thing that's going to really fire up those people because, um, you know, Ginsburg represents, um, you know, sort of the, in some ways, you know, the, the progressive sort of agenda of the Democratic Party in a in a weird sort of sense. Right. So I don't know if that fires up those those Democrats that are sitting that are maybe thinking about sitting out. On the other hand, you know, Republicans, you know, if 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 McConnell and Trump successfully put through a nominee. Right. It's not like Republicans are going to come out and vote because they hope to, you know, be able to secure the next Supreme Court nominee because it's already done. Right. So I think mm -hmm. the timing is going to determine some of how this some of this electoral impact. I don't know. It, it's really hard to say. <laughs> well, this is a developing story uh, and we need, we need to get going on with our other Saturday activities, uh, including uh, this will be and this. I don't know if this will be out before we gather, but we'll be celebrating uh, Constitution Day which happened on Thursday. And so I'll see you guys later tonight at a bonfire, socially distanced, of course. Um, so thanks for joining us on, election, on this uh, special episode of Election Shock Therapy. We'll be back in your regular feed on Wednesday. Uh, thanks for listening to us. You can always get a hold of us at channel3900 at gmail.com. That's the, that's the channel. You can email our show directly, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Thanks for listening. Um, and blessings in the memory of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Go Royals.